So what's exciting about today as well is that we're starting our 1 Thessalonians series. Um, you may or may not be aware that we have, uh, we're planning to do that a while ago, but the circumstances have shifted it out um, a bit further. And so we start that today. It'd be a good idea in preparation for this to take the book of Thessalonians and actually read it through. It's a short book. You can read it through easily in one sitting. And uh, we're going to be um, opening it up a bit over the next few weeks. I've got to be careful. I also just to remind me to look at the clock because... Now that I'm with people again, I might get so excited, I might lose my control and they just preach on and on for hours and hours and hours. So, um, The book of 1 Thessalonians was written by Paul, the apostle, probably less than 20 years after the death of Jesus. And so we think about the fact that World of Life Church has been going for 20 years. That's not a long time from when um, Jesus was on this earth ministering in his death and his resurrection, changed the world. And then Paul now is, is writing the letter to the church in Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica was um, a, a, capital, um, a, city of the, a capital city in the Roman province of Macedonia and had a population of about 100,000 people. It doesn't seem a lot in today's terms, but that was a big city in those days. Um, and uh, what is interesting is that Paul and his team actually went to Thessalonica and only gathered, it seems, for three Sabbaths or three weeks with the people there, preached the gospel, people got saved, and they were forced to leave the city, and in only three weeks, effectively, a church was planted. Isn't that amazing? And there's something special about this, and Paul, a couple of months later, was worried about how these new believers, these new converts were doing, and how this baby church was surviving, and so he sent his son of the faith, Timothy, up to Thessalonica, and he then came back to um, Paul, who was in Corinth at the time, and reported to him all that he had seen, and Paul, this letter is Paul's response to both the planting of the church and then Timothy's report back to him. And so um, I want to read verses through, uh, 2 through 10 on uh, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn there please. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then, just verse 6 from the New Living Translation says it like this. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. You know, I sometimes wonder about the, the gospel that's being proclaimed in some places because it comes with this um, promise, I suppose, that life will be a bed of roses once you, once you come to Jesus Christ or it'll meet your every desire and you'll live this life of ease. Um, and yet, Paul writing to this church that he loves so much is explicit when he says that they received it in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. Accepting the gospel 
brought the believers in Thessalonica um, suffering. And uh, as the ESV puts it, much affliction. And the, the true gospel is not a prosperity gospel. I'm not against prosperity. I'm not for poverty. I think there's all sorts of social ills that come with poverty. But at the same time, the gospel isn't this um, super fix-it-all that will um, suddenly cause us to be living in wealth and have every need of ours met as soon as we come to Jesus Christ. Um, there are seasons, even for those that follow, the, go that follow uh, the gospel and follow Christ closely, of lack. There are seasons of difficulty. Some of you might be going through those right now. There are seasons of suffering, even when we're at the center of God's purpose for our lives. In fact, I don't think the gospel is safe. I think the gospel is something dangerous. And we have to be careful, actually, about exposing our children to the gospel. Um, the worst thing I think that we can do is to introduce our children to the gospel with the idea that this is something safe and something easy and then we release them into the world and say go take this easy gospel with you and um, and it turns out that it's not that way and it turns out they're going to face all sorts of difficulties because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we haven't shown the example of what it means to live and stand firm on that gospel and uh, one of the, the the highlights for me from last year 2019 who remembers 2019 that was a good year eh it didn't feel like it was that good a year, but man, it was a good year. Um, but 2019, one of the things that stood out for me was um, the news. I don't know exactly when that moment happened, but that Kanye West had become a follower of Christ. And you might have your opinions or whatever on him. But uh, in my view, um, what I've seen um, in his testimony and so far is that he has genuinely become a follower of Jesus Christ. And he released this album called Jesus is King which became quickly one of my favorites because I'm such a rap star and, uh, and love to be um, in the hood with my, with my boys. Anyway, one of the songs, one of the lines of one of the songs that he sings um, says this. It says, use this gospel for protection. It's a hard road to heaven. Use this gospel for protection. It's a hard road to heaven. It reminds me of Paul and Barnabas when they were going through Asia Minor uh, preaching the gospel and planting churches. And it says on the way back, they, they came to the churches to strengthen them and encourage them. And do you want to know what, how they summarized the message in Acts 14.22, this message of encouragement? It was this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul is re-emphasizing this message that he says, in spite of the severe suffering it, it brought you, you received this gospel, this message, in, with joy in the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if it's even right, given what I've said about this message, that it's fair to even call it good news. Because it sounds a little bit like, this is bad news. Welcome to Jesus and there's suffering coming your way. Do you know what I mean? That type of thing. But actually, um, it's only that way if we measure our lives by this life only. If we, we believe the advertisers when they tell us that the, a, a good life is a life where we've accumulated this and where we have every pleasure met and every comfort um, at our disposal. But when we take a different view of it, when we take the long game view that Paul took, then we see that it is indeed good news. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And you might not feel like these are light and momentary troubles, but I promise you, compared to what Paul went through, these are light and momentary troubles. He spoke about being shipwrecked twice, being um, flogged a number of times, I can't remember, three times, and then um, whipped another, another couple of times as well, left for dead, starving, etc., etc. And he calls these light and momentary troubles. 
Um, you guys know Matt Larson. He's one of the guys that are part of the Genesis leadership. His grandfather died yesterday, I think, at the age of 93. So he had a really good long life. And his father, Matt's father, this grandfather's son, obviously, Ron, wrote this on Facebook. He says, um, ultimately, the only thing that matters in this life is the decision we make about Jesus. And I couldn't agree more. Ultimately, the only thing that matters in this life is the decision we make about Jesus. And the truth is that we need to see this life, our dreams, our, the things that we own, our sense of security and safety, and even our, our very lives in the light of eternity. Um, I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, as I've been uh, doing a lot of actually over this time when we've been stuck. And uh, it's called, um, the podcast is called Unheard, H-E-A-R-D. And um, the guest on the show was a guy by the name of Matthew Crawford. And he'd, he'd written a book called Why We Drive Cars. And uh, I'll leave you, to, you can go listen to the podcast um, to find out why the book has that title. But the, the, the kind of topic of the podcast was our, our desire for safety and comfort and how it shapes our lives and how it affects our lives. And so neither the interviewer nor the person being interviewed are believers. This is a purely secular approach to it. But um, as so often happens, what's true in Scripture is true everywhere because truth is truth no matter where it is. And Matthew Crawford said this, and it, and it really impacted me deeply when he said it. He said, the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk becomes. Say that again. The safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk becomes. Now, there's hardly a safer place to live than Dubai, probably on the earth. I mean, we gotta, we, I, I often leave my keys in the car. And, I mean, I'll, don't worry about my wallet lying around. I can remember going cycling the one time and pressing the button to close the trunk of my, my um, car like this. And I've been here long enough now that I call it a trunk because in South Africa we wouldn't do that. But um, obviously it hit something as I was cycling off. The auto beam caught something and it opened again. And so my car stayed open while I went for the ride with my wallet sitting at center place right there. And um, I came back an hour later and my wallet was still sitting right there where it was supposed to be. Now, if I had been in South Africa, they would, well, the car and the wallet would have been gone, never mind the wallet itself. And, um, but, but what happens is we, we, we come into an environment where, we, where our, we, be, we feel safer, where we feel more secure, where we feel more comfortable, where we feel more the, 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 the reality, the affluence that we live in is, is increasingly real for us. And so that we become unwilling to make sacrifices for anything, even for the sake of the gospel. Those things become more and more important to us. And what actually happens, instead of us feeling safe and secure, the smallest little thing begins to rock our world. And whereas before, you know, the fact that we have God on our side is the only thing that matters. The monk, author, theologian, and mystic Thomas Merton says something similar to what uh, Matthew Crawford said. He says, the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. What he's saying, I think, is that the more important our wealth, our health, our comfort, our technology, or whatever becomes, the more the loss of those things threaten us. And Paul's teaching us, and the church in Thessalonica, that what we actually need the most, what, we, what should be our greatest desire, can never, ever be taken from us, which is the gospel, which is our relationship with God. Jesus says to us that we're not to fear those that can destroy the body, we're to fear him who can destroy the soul. The psalmist writes and says, there's nothing on this earth, Lord, that I desire more than you. And again, Jesus makes this point when he says, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world? The, the greatest reputation, the 
builds the greatest companies, um, leads the most amazing countries, does everything. Um, what does that profit him if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And uh, the more we allow that gospel message to sink in, that we have what matters, the more courageous and sacrificial we can become with our lives. And it doesn't matter whether we're a 70-year-old woman or a 20-year-old young man or anything in between. It doesn't matter what our education status is or economic status. What matters is that we've been reconciled to God. And friends, you might be going through some unbelievably difficult things right now, but if you belong to Jesus Christ, that's the message that we receive with great joy, regardless of what else is going on in our lives and whatever else God may call us to sacrifice. In that podcast, um, Matthew Crawford referenced um, a, a kid's movie called Wally. Any of you ever seen that movie? We've had kids in that time, so we had seen it. Matt, I'm sure you've seen it, eh? Have you? No. Anyway, in this movie, uh, animated movie, I can't really remember what it's about. I just remember this little broken down kind of robot guy and his um, hot robot girlfriend. Um, but there's a scene in the movie, Matthew Crawford reminded me of, um, where these, there are human beings, but they're these um, overweight uh, men and women that are taken around in these self-driving cars with the, fixated on the screen that's in front of them. And he says this about the scene. He says, their faces beam with the slackened opiate of pleasure. These are people who are completely safe and content, but somehow are less than fully human. And uh, the message that we have is that we have been forgiven our sins. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that our sins that separate us from God have been paid for in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that not only are we forgiven, and, and in this life that means something, the guilt and the shame and the condemnation is taken away, but more importantly, we are reconciled to God our Father. We are in right relationship with Him, so that no matter what happens to us, no matter what is taken from us, we, we will spend an eternity with Him. And as I preached on last week, for all of those that have gone on ahead of us, they, the, the confidence we have for those that were lovers of Jesus Christ is we know where they've gone. And that's the confidence we have. And it should fill us with an incredible sense of courage for the gospel task that God has set for us. I want to speak about three things about that gospel that Paul speaks about in this passage. Number one, the saving power of the gospel. I'll speak about the saving power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, and the exemplary power of the gospel. Verse 9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Don't you love that picture? They turned from serving idols to serve the living and true God. And uh, I love the power of the gospel that's able to break into the most, um, the hardest hearts and actually turn people around so that they can follow Christ. And... Um, I, I, when I, I remember as a young man reading those books, um, Run Baby Run and uh, The Cross and the Switchblade. I don't know if any of you have read those, but they're the, the, really the story of David Wilkinson, who was the preacher, and Nicky Cruz, who was the gang member. And uh, they've probably made a musical about this, I guess, um, because they make musicals about everything. But this is not a musical story. Nicky Cruz was a, was, a, was a gang leader, I think in New York, uh, and, and uh, a vicious, vicious man. He had actually grown up, I think, in the Caribbean with um, parents who were involved in all sorts of occultic practices. Uh, in one of, his, one of the books he speaks about lying under the floorboards of the house, it was obviously on stilts or something, and listening to his parents as they were going through occultic practices and calling on demons and witches and things like that. And, and so he comes with that background 
to this thing, uh, to this uh, city in America. He leads his gang. There, is, there are all sorts of initiation practices that would make your skin crawl if you hear about them. And as I was reading this book, I was thinking, and I know the end of the book, still I was thinking this, this guy's never going to get saved. How is it possible for the gospel to reach this man? Not only is his heart so incredibly hard, but he's like, his world is so utterly the opposite of this. How does a man who lives this way come to Jesus Christ? And uh, the wonderful thing about the gospel, and which made these books worth reading, is the fact that he did come to Jesus Christ. In fact, apparently him and all of his gang came to the police station the one day and kind of handed in all of their weapons like this. Can you imagine them all walking in and taking their buffs off and, and putting their knives on and poles on and chains on and everything and guns and all those things on the desk. And, uh, and, and they actually, um, trans- it was a, a transformation that took place in their lives. I love the saving power of the gospel. And I don't know who um, it is in your life that you think, well, the gospel will never get to them. I know for, um, one of my great stories that I love telling is of, of Linda's grandfather. He was a um, Scotsman, grew up in Glasgow, as Linda's dad did, um, married to a Scotswoman, and he came to South Africa. He was a, a lovely man, but he was like, for 70 years, I'm not interested in God, I'm not interested in God at all. And, uh, but Linda's dad had come to Christ, and so he prayed for him again and again and again and again, day after day, day after day, and continued to share the gospel with him. And then I think your grandfather died at 75, eh? and just before his uh, death, probably three months before his death, he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then um, he, he, and after he died, then Linda's grandmother received Christ as his Lord and Savior as well. It doesn't matter how long it takes, the gospel has got a power to turn even the hardest heart to Christ. And don't give up proclaiming that gospel to those that are around you. Secondly, the transforming power of the gospel. Verse 3 says, he says, we remember, we remember you before our God and Father. We remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three things, faith, love, and hope, together with peace and joy, Dallas Willard calls those the Magnificent Five. I love that name. I kind of think of the, I know it's the Magnificent Seven, but change it now. You kind of think of those, these five things riding into town, like these horsemen riding in. Uh, faith, hope, love, peace, and joy. And uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that, um, that when everything else has passed away, that faith, hope, and love remains. And these, these three things, these, this triumphant of our faith, occupy so much space in Paul's letters. And they, I think they, they mark the three fruits um, of the gospel that should be evident in our life. There should be, in the life of the believer, evidence of the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. And... Um, and if it's not there in a person's life, I believe we've got to preach the gospel to them. And that's maybe the reason why even in churches the gospel has to be preached over and over again. But friends, when we don't see it in our family members, when we don't see it in our friends, when we don't see it in, in others, even if they've said, look, I've, I'm a Christian, I've, put, I've received Christ as my Lord and Savior. If those fruits are not evident there, I'd rather be rude if that's how I'm perceived and preach the gospel to them and tell them they need to come to Jesus Christ because this is the evident fruit of the gospel in the life of the believer. The work of faith is to receive the message um, um, that produces salvation. Without, without faith, if, I, if, if you preach the gospel and it's not received, if it's not combined with faith, it's just a wasted hour. It's just time that's spent talking. Only when the message of salvation is combined with faith and it produces the life that is born again is there salvation. Do you believe 
that the, the message, the gospel message, has the power to transform lives and to save people. Paul says in verse 5, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And the commentators, they're uncertain as to whether that, that phrase full conviction applies to the one that's preaching the message or something that um, happens to the person that receives the message. And whenever I, I, I see something that could mean both those things, I, I just take both of them because we get two for the price of one. And I think in the preaching of the gospel, the one that preaches the gospel ought to preach it with conviction and it should produce in the person that receives the gospel a similar conviction as well. I was uh, reading a really good book a little while back by Charles Spurgeon called The Soul Winner and I, I just loved it. I loved his, his boldness in proclaiming the gospel. And in it he says, he says, encouraging us as we share the gospel message with other people, he says, believe what you do believe or else you will never persuade anyone else to believe it. Believe what you do believe, otherwise you'll never persuade anyone else to believe it. You must have great faith in the Word of God if you are to be winners of souls to those who have it. You must also believe in the power of that message to save people. And sometimes you think about this gospel, like maybe you've shared it many times with different people, or maybe you've heard it many times, and so it's become familiar to our ears, and we wonder, has this message actually got any power? Has this, can this message do what God says the message can do? Is the, is the Word of God able to accomplish that? Some years ago, I had, um, there was somebody in our church, a leader in the church actually, came to me one day and said to me that I, um, he wanted a step of leadership, and one of the reasons that he gave was because I lacked epistemological humility. Now, I'm not sure you can put those two words together and pretend you're humble yourself because that's a really fancy word. And all epistemology means is, the, is how we know the things that we know. In other words, you, too, you have too much of a conviction about the Word of God that it, it is what it says it is. There's got to be some place for doubt. There's got to be some, some place that, that maybe we, the Word of God is not actually the Word of God. Maybe it's whatever he was saying. Anyway, he left the church. And... Um, but you know what happens is those things become like a little scratch at us like that. When somebody shares something, that it begins to scratch at you like this. And the devil uses it to begin to undermine your confidence in the Word of God, to begin to, in the, in the name of humility, which is not humility at all, produce doubt in us where the Word of God produces conviction in us and confidence in us that God is speaking. And Billy Graham, the great preacher, once faced a similar battle. He had a friend called Charles Templeton, and Charles um, came to him one day and said, Billy, you can't believe in the Word of God as the infallible Word anymore and the inerrant Word of God because, um, he says, because all that science has done with evolution is proving that the Bible is wrong. And Charles Templeton actually ended up um, walking away from God. He wrote a book called something, who, who cares, something about leaving Jesus or something like that. But um, obviously Billy Graham didn't. And the, the, the key moment was, Billy says, he, he describes this in his biography, he took his Bible and he went out to a forest one day to go deal with God on the issue of, the issue of whether this message is actually God's message. And as he says that eventually after praying and praying, he put the Bible down on a, the trunk of a log that had been cut off like this, and he said, God, today I'm, I'm in faith believing and um, living with a conviction that this is your word spoken to a people that shows the way of salvation. And he went on to become probably the most prolific soul winner of the 20th century. And friends, we've got we've to be those that have a conviction that this is the word of God. And where we see people that are living lives where the evidence of the gospel is not there, we need to preach it. 
Yeah, the, the worst thing we can do is love people who call themselves Christians into hell. And uh, so much more for those that are neighbors. For, for we know, you probably personally know of dozens of people who would say, if you said, what faith are you? They would say they were Christian, but they've got no relationship with Jesus Christ. Or they've, they've never actually come to the place of combining faith with the message that received. And so if we don't see those fruits in their life, the work of faith, the, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope, then we need to carry this message of salvation because the message, the gospel, transforms lives. Stephen Curtis Chapman um, had a song the one time that he sang that was called, What About the Change? And, uh, and he said something like this, I've got my big Bible, I've got my fish sticker on my car, I've got my cross necklace on, but what about the change? It doesn't matter what all the externals we put on. We, we learn how to speak good Christian language. We know when to say hallelujah and when to say amen. We know how to quote that scripture, I'm the head and I'm not the tail. We know, we, know, we know how to do the Christian things, but are we Christians? Are we the sons and the daughters of the Lord God Most High? I'm going to have to jump over one or two things and, and land with the exemplary power of the gospel. Verse 7 says, And so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those places, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say a thing. We kind of sang about this today as well. I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas who said, no, no, it was St. Francis of Assisi, I think, who said, um, I, I preach the gospel always and sometimes I use words. I think that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, and I'll give him credit because he was obviously brighter than there was and more spiritual than I was. Um, that he was meaning I actually preach the gospel whenever the opportunity comes, but I want to live a life that sets an example to it as well. But the gospel is literally good news. It has to be announced. It has to be proclaimed. The gospel cannot come to other people by osmosis. Your neighbor will not know the gospel message just by living next door to you. At some point, we actually have to proclaim this message to them, and we have to be ready. We have to be equipped. Like, how do I share the gospel when the opportunity comes up? But it, but it does mean, as we sang today, that we need to live a life that's consistent with it. I, um, you know, I've joked before about this technique of flirting to convert, where um, these guys, or girls, I suppose, will go out to a nightclub, and they'll get drunk, and they'll meet this person, and they will, who knows what, and then they will um, invite them to church the next day, and then be quite proud that they brought them to church, as if, as if this is like somehow a coherent way of living because they're living in an ungodly way, but they're bringing people to church. Actually, we need to live in a way that is consistent with the faith that God has called us to. And it may at times ostracize us from some people, but when it matters, it'll draw people to us. We need to live that kind of life. I cannot tell you how many times when I was working at Deloitte in South Africa, how many people came into my office door to come speak to me about issues that were going on in their lives. The one time a secretary came to find me in the cafeteria and said, won't you please come? One of the partners of the firm, I was, I was a manager then, was having a meltdown in his office. And uh, I think she had been to one of the prayer meetings that I was holding in at Deloitte. She said, won't you please come quickly and come speak to this partner? He needs some help. You see, when, when the storms of life come and the foundations of our life are rocking, who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn to the person that lives in such a way with that fruit, that has the, the works of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope. And I got the, the privilege of being able to um, share the gospel with that man in his office that day. On uh, this week, um, Geraldine shared her testimony on Thursday, if you've been following the devotions. Um, she had the opportunity to um, preach the gospel to her father, George, Curious George, and, um, and, his, uh, and her stepmother. 
and uh, Geraldine shared this with us in our staff meeting on Monday and actually produced these little cards for us, like a little um, tract, but also a reminder for us in terms of how we might proclaim the gospel. And uh, I, I wonder if it isn't a reminder for us in this time. Think about the moment that we're in where everything is shaking all around us, where the whole, um, where the whole nation is shaking, the nations are shaking, jobs, what's going on with jobs? Um, we, we, we carry in our hearts those people that have lost their jobs at this time and the difficulty they face in that, people having to relocate and um, um, what we've been through and others have been through where um, you're unable to go and be with family at the times when you most need them. But what is the one thing that is not shaking in this time? And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God is calling us, I believe, as we go into this letter, one of the reminders that we have is that this gospel that secures our eternal future is a gospel that we need to be proclaiming and living out right now.